Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Christmas is coming soon, which means candy canes, Nat King Cole, decorated trees, and people saying all kinds of ridiculous things on social media about how Christmas was originally a pagan holiday. Not just that. All the Grinches out there want you to feel bad about celebrating Christmas. So they're going to tell you Christmas is too commercial, and that nobody really knows when Jesus was born, and that It's a Wonderful Life is just a lot of moralistic therapeutic deism. Here's the thing. The Grinches have it all wrong. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and my latest book is The 25th, New and Selected Christmas Essays. In my new book, I argue that Christmas doesn't need to be reformed, doesn't need to be reimagined, doesn't need to be edited, and that it's just fine the way it is. Christmas doesn't need us, we need Christmas. You can order the 25th right now on Amazon or on the Cersei website. You're listening to the Cersei Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs. By which I mean wise sayings a man may live by, if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 43, No Easy Way Out. Today's proverb is unattributed. I'll read it twice. No good deed goes unpunished. Once more. No good deed goes unpunished. I should say before getting started that I'm recording this podcast in the middle of the day, which is not typical. In the middle of the day, in the middle of a school day, too, I am at home, sick, taking a day off from work. And I'm recording this podcast in my bedroom, which is right next to the quad of the school. I live on the campus of my school, as I think I've mentioned before, which means that you might hear a little background noise, some children playing before the episode is over. Nothing to be concerned with. No good deed goes unpunished. I chose this proverb before I got sick, just so you know. I'm not feeling sorry for myself. 
Um, there's something perhaps self-pitying about saying no good deed goes unpunished. Oh, I don't think that's really the case. Only on the surface does it appear that way. I think, in fact, this is a, a bluesy sort of proverb where we're made to take comfort in a sad face, um, as Solomon says. Sad face is good for the heart. It's a good thing to tell yourself when things go wrong in the midst of your virtue. It's a good thing to remind yourself of that, um, that good deeds don't necessarily guarantee an easy life. No good deed goes unpunished. I think the average person sins so much and suffers so much that on the rare occasion that the average man does something perfectly selfless, he expects not to suffer at all. We all do a lot of sinning. We all do a lot of suffering. Some of that suffering is connected to our sinning, but not all of it. Christ suffered greatly, and yet he was without sin. Uh, the same is true, or something like it is true, of Job as well. Um, Job suffered because he was good. Job suffered because his goodness attracted the attention of both God and the devil. If Job had done fewer good deeds, he wouldn't have been worth noticing. Suffering is a constant in this life. Man is born into trouble as the flames rise, as Job says, which means that suffering is often the result no matter what we do. Doing good necessarily involves a certain kind of suffering in and of itself. Virtue is a painful triumph over vice. Vice always promises pleasure now. Virtue always delays pleasure for the day of judgment. And so virtue often entails some kind of physical loss. Now, there is a comfort that comes from doing what's right. There is a certain comfort that comes from looking forward to your recompense. But virtue often involves some kind of physical loss here and now, loss of pleasure, loss of comfort, um, or even um, great suffering uh, in this life on account of virtue. So there's two ways in which virtue leads to suffering. One is that virtue is painful to pursue in and of itself. And then, as in the case of Job, um, he offers sacrifices to God, of course, which entails loss, but the virtue of offering the sacrifices entails suffering even on top of that. I think that it's this latter sense, the Job-like sense of suffering or punishment, that the proverb is concerned with. The man who painfully overcomes an addiction isn't being punished, at least not so far as this week's proverb is concerned. So some alcoholic gives up liquor and um, suffers convulsions and hallucinations. That's not exactly the punishment that comes with doing something good, overcoming an addiction, and not at least so far as this week's proverb is concerned. So, I mean, take, for example, um, the loss of time and money entailed in taking dinner to a friend. You make dinner for a sick friend, 
and you make them enchiladas and you have to buy all the stuff for enchiladas and you have to make them and you have to drive to their house. The proverb isn't concerned with punishment as the loss of time and money involved in the pursuit of virtue. What the proverb is concerned with is that scenario where you make dinner for your friend and you take the dinner to them and then you get in a $2,000 fender bender on the way home and you think... Given that I did this good thing, could God not provide some sort of hedge of protection around me on my drive home? This seems like a rather small thing to ask. If you want, Lord, for people to keep taking dinner to their friends, you at least have to protect them in traffic on the way to and from their friend's house. Seems fair. This perhaps is more of what the proverb is concerned with. St. Augustine says that bad things happen to bad people because they deserve it. The bad things that happen to bad people are also a warning to bad people that they should change their ways. Um, Good things happen to bad people as well, Augustine says. And the good things that happen to bad people are a reminder to good people that good things aren't all that important. God is willing to throw money, fame, power, celebrity at all kinds of terrible people so that good people realize that those things don't really matter. As Augustine says that, Boethius says that. Um, Augustine also says that good things happen to good people because they deserve it. As a, as a spur to keep being good, good things happen to good people. Now, it should be noted, of course, when we talk about good things happening to bad people and so forth, that there's a temptation to equivocate when we talk about good things happening to bad people or good things happening to good people or whatever combination of these things we mention. Because when we talk about good and bad things happening to good and bad people, good and bad things really refers to pleasant and unpleasant things. And good and bad people refers to righteous and unrighteous people. So, why do pleasant things happen to unrighteous people? That's the, the more apt way of putting it. That's the more precise way of putting it. But why do unpleasant things happen to righteous people? The quote is simply stating that the righteous are often punished for their righteousness. No good deed. No qualification there. Not many good deeds are punished. The quote is also not stated positively. Good deeds are punished. No good deed goes unpunished. Look at this double negative. Unpunished sounds more like unnoticed. There's always somebody who notices our good deeds and doesn't like them. Unpunished, no good deed goes unpunished, suggests one doling out punishment, who keeps close observance over all that's been put into his care, the god of this world. Good deeds are punished for a number of reasons. Good people cannot help 
attracting the ire of others. Cain slew Abel because he was good. Good deeds also embarrass people on the receiving end. Not always, of course. But good deeds can be a terrible embarrassment to those who receive them. And on this front, I have only my own life and my own career with which to make sense of the Proverbs on this show. So I have to say that I've seen good teachers get attacked by absentee parents who suddenly decide they need to put on a show for their children, a show that proves that they care. I've seen parents suddenly decide to paint unsuspecting teachers as bullies and then swoop in to defend their children from baffled teachers. Good deeds are often punished because of misunderstandings as well. We don't receive good deeds as such. Sometimes we know that good deeds are being directed at us and we're embarrassed by them. We want people to stop doing us good because we have no desire to do them good. And so to get good people to keep their good deeds from them to themselves, we attack them, belittle them, insult them, gossip about them, slander them. But I believe that good deeds are punished also because of misunderstandings. Again, I have only, only have my own life with which to make sense of this claim. No good deed goes unpunished. We live in a boutique age. We live in an age where we're willing to pay outrageous prices for goods and services that have a sort of um, fake premium placed on them. It was conventional knowledge uh, back in the 1970s and 80s that if people wouldn't pay a dollar for six ounces of something, they would pay $2 for 12 ounces, and that what people wanted was more. Famous studies that back this up, McDonald's um, exploded in popularity in the 19, uh, 1980s and 90s on this principle that if people won't buy your product, just double the size and double the price, and they will. What they want is a lot. Well, that's died away a bit. Um, I'm going to talk about this a little bit in How to Be Unlucky. Um, the sort of conventional logic of give more, charge more has really been cut in half. And that um, today, if somebody won't pay a dollar for 12 ounces, they will pay $2 for six ounces or $4 for three ounces. What you need to do is ramp up the price and cut the portion in half. And then people think they're getting something really special. This is the boutique age that I'm referring to. Um, we want to know that the things that we're buying are highly sought after. Um, and so not only is less is more, smaller runs are more. We can create ultra premiums in secondary markets by creating almost none of a certain product, whether the product is any good or not. We love the idea of the limited edition. Um, back in the... 80s and 90s, there was a lot of things marketed as limited editions, but there was absolutely no truth to it. We all knew it. it um, things were allegedly limited editions, but we all knew that there were 
you know, billions of them. Today, I think the key to successful marketing, at least over the last five years, is saying limited edition and actually meaning it. Anyway, we live in this boutique age. And the fact that we live in this boutique age has created a number of misunderstandings about classical education. So lest we lose sight of today's proverb, good deeds are punished for simple misunderstandings. I want to say that misunderstanding is one of the reasons why good deeds are punished. Or they don't go unpunished, as the proverb says. A lot of people look at classical education as a sort of boutique product. They look at classical education to provide a lot of individual attention um, in the same way that, um, you know, if you were to go uh, to Rodeo Drive and, and um, you know, walk into, uh, um, walk into a, a little Balenciaga boutique and they only have, you know, a couple racks of clothes, and there's two people that come up to you. Thank you for coming in today. Here's a glass of Prosecco. We'd like to do your colors for you and figure out which of our products is, uh, which of our clothes is best suited to you, and maybe we'll make a, a fragrance just for you. Yeah, that sort of boutique experience. There's a lot of people who think that that's the sort of education that a classical education is. They know or they see that a classical education is expensive. It's more expensive than a public school education. And so... As the relationship between Gap and Balenciaga, so the relationship between public school and private school. That this is, for a lot of people, what you're paying for, what you think you're paying for. Now, when it comes to boutique products, the people who sell us boutique products almost always have these long and complicated stories about what they are. Have you ever noticed this before? Like back, you know, if you if you shopped at Whole Foods before the pandemic, it's always somebody giving away free samples at um, Whole Foods. Uh, some sandwich cookie, some pudding. <laughs> you walk up and um, unlike in, say, you know, Costco, like, this is chicken Kiev. It was frozen. I baked it. Here's a bite of it. Like if you go up to somebody handing out samples in Whole Foods, they're going to tell you this little fairy tale about the sandwich cookie that they're offering you. Um, all of these stories about, you know, shade-grown, gluten-free wheat, dolphin-safe chocolate that we made it with, the board of the company, um, is like half woman, half trans, like only minorities are allowed to work at the... And they come up with this, like, fable about the cookie. And I don't know how many times I got that little story from somebody hawking a cookie, and I took a bite of it. I'm like, well, that's pretty good. I'll, I'll take a pack of those. I had no interest in the little fairy tale that came with the cookie. I thought, all right, fine, this is a decent chocolate cookie. I'm going to buy it. I like your pudding. It's good pudding. I don't need to hear about um, the virtuous people that made this or the virtuous company that's selling it. I like banana pudding. You've made some good banana pudding, so I'm going to buy it. And so, you know, in this boutique age, if you're going to persuade somebody to pay $8 for a pint of pudding, you have to have, um, 
you know, you have to have this like Silmarillion-esque origin story to go with the pudding. And I don't care about that story. Um, maybe this is shallow, uh, but but I buy pudding based on taste and price, and that's pretty much it. I don't care about the rest of that. I get the sense that there's a lot of people who tour classical schools who hear these lengthy stories, these lectures on classical education while they're walking around the school. And it's like telling me at Whole Foods about, um, you know, the legend of the sandwich cookie. Like, yeah, 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 that's nice. (laughs) I don't care. Um, This cookie tastes good. I'm going to buy it. Yeah, 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 I get it. Classical education, Latin and rhetoric, whatever. This is just a nice-looking school. Kids here look pretty polite. That's it. That was the interview right there. That's all I really cared about. Um, This school looks prestigious enough. It costs enough. It's going to look awesome on a transcript. You've got a volleyball team. It's neat. I like volleyball. Um, The uniforms are very, very handsome. Uh, I don't want to buy my kids buy my kids a bunch of um, American Eagle crap. So um, yeah, Land's End it is. Don't have to worry about buying fashionable clothes for my kids. Can just set all that aside. This is great. Classical education it is. I imagine that there are plenty of people who tour a classical school, and their decision is more or less made by the time they walk in the front door. They see some kids on the quad. Very nice, very respectful. Um, You know, parents take a common sense approach to the school. Uh, Looks like it's way harder to buy weed here than it is at the public school. It's good, like that. No cheerleaders. It's kind of a throwbacky kind of um, Puritan vibe. I guess I can get behind that. Kids are oversexed these days anyway. And that's the decision. That's it right there. And then somebody leads you around and, and tells you all these fascinating things about Paul Parrott, Pert, Poetic, Doug Wilson, Dorothy Sayers, Andrew Kern, Chris Perrin, um, IHP program. <sighs> yeah, that's fine. Cool. Shade-grown wheat. Whatever. <laughs> Your board's half woman, half trans, whatever. I don't care. Like, I made the decision already. And so you kind of politely nod your head while you're told about classical education. And this is not a part of your decision-making process. And, you know, nice couples on the way home, driving home. Like, yeah, great-looking school. We should definitely, definitely send Junior there. Um, Man, the woman leading the tour was sure into that whole classical thing. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, not my thing. Maybe I'll get into it someday, but um, not not really concerned with that right now. I like some guy in his 40s who inherits a bunch of money, decides he wants to buy a sexy car, goes to a Jaguar dealership. He's more or less made his decision before the salesman comes out. He just wants something that looks fast. He wants something that looks fast when it's just sitting in park. He makes his decision. The salesman comes out, some dignified old man. Oh, yes, the Jaguar is the best car. Tells him all about the engine. He's like, ah, I made the decision based on the look of the thing. It's cool that it's got a story, but I don't really care. Now, you're not going to persuade me that this doesn't happen often enough 
classical Christian schools. And I, so I don't think that classical schools accrue non-classical people through duplicitous means. Because I think it's entirely understandable that in a boutique age, you just let this whole story about Latin rhetoric, Dorothy Sayers, just go over your head. Like, yeah, I don't care about that. You seem very sold on this, but my interests are just far more basic than yours. Like, you can't live in the modern world without being willing to say that 50 times a day. So I get the misunderstandings that occur between parents and schools on this front. Now, that said, good deeds are punished because of simple misunderstandings. There's probably at least 10% of a school, 10% of a school population that signs up because it looks nice. And the whole classical thing is just some weirdo interest these people have. Now, over, um, over the course of that student's time at the school, that approach is going to get more and more problematic the older the student gets, I think. So that by the time you hit seventh or eighth grade, um, the teacher who takes a truly classical approach is saying all kinds of just straight-up classical things, the kind of things that they say in the tour that are starting to rub you the wrong way if you signed up merely because this is a nice-looking school. Like, up until about 6th, 7th grade, a lot of what goes on in a classical school is artistic, involves memorization, it's the whole Latin thing, there's lots of group recitations. Nothing terribly surprising there, but as soon as you get to 7th or 8th grade... 7th or 8th grade is where the, the classical rubber meets the road. And I'm, I'm not dismissing the importance of classical pedagogy in elementary school. Not at all. But classical pedagogy in the elementary school is a lot easier for people with secular desires to overlook. And then all of a sudden, when you hit transcript age, you start freaking out about grade issues. And you've got these teachers who are merely reciting, merely parroting everything that's been said about grades from the point that parents taking a tour step through the front door. And you're getting all kinds of angry emails about grades. You're thinking to yourself, man, there is, there's no reason for you to be this upset. <laughs> I'm merely doing what I've been doing for years. I'm merely saying things I've been saying for years. As soon as you hit seventh or eighth grade, the the classical side of a of a Christian school really starts to seem like it has this sort of fiscal downside, this economic downside, where you start worrying about SATs, ACTs, and the teachers are just blithely indifferent to those things. And that means that the classical teacher is going to get, um, I don't want to, punished? Being classical is going to lead to, being truly classical is going to lead to the teacher suffering. 
having to explain over and again what a classical education is. Now, I say all of this, I think that there are ways around this. I think that there might be ways of introducing a classical education that would truly jar people. I think that might be necessary. But at the same time, no good deed goes unpunished means you can't expect an easy life no matter how you live. There is no easy life. There's no good life where somebody doesn't like what you're doing. The better you are at what you do, the more it's going to cost you. The better you are at what you do, the more people are going to dislike you. Um, and in that sense, you just have to have a steel stomach. Um, and I say this like whether no matter what industry you're in, like the better you are, the more steely your stomach has to be. Um, when I look back over the last six or seven years uh, on everything that I've written for the Cersei Institute, the nastiest feedback I get on what I write is for articles that are more popular than, than not. I mean, the most popular things that I write, the articles that I write that go over the best also um, warrant the, the most unfair feedback, I'd say. Um, <laughs> written several articles on the necessity of giving the best to your kids. Um, it's those articles that, um, that warrant, um, you know, male saying things like, um, this is racist. <laughs> it's racist to say that parents should give their kids the best or the best they can. Um, you know, accusations of white privilege being tone deaf, all just, all from take care of your kids articles that go over very well. So, yeah, I mean, I only bring that up because there's a sense in which the no good deed, no good work goes unpunished. Like, not only virtue, not only is, is virtue punished, just good work in general is simultaneously rewarded and de-incentivized. Uh, because somebody out there is not going to like the fact that you're doing good work. Man is born into trouble as the flames rise. There's no easy way out of the world. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.